What's up, everyone? You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the show today because it's going to be the final episode of Weekends, not just for the year, but for forever. Uh, Nando and I are uh, moving on to some other projects, uh, but it doesn't mean it'll be the last that you'll hear from us or see from us. You know, um, I know that I'm planning on still, you know, working with Kale and uh, producing some content for the YouTube channel, not necessarily in the form of a live show, but, you know, content that you guys can access on demand. And Nando, I'm excited for you. You uh, have some exciting stuff going on uh, in yeah. your career. Yeah. Do you want to share it with the audience? Well, I, you know, I can't really share many details yet, but uh, the, you know, this is a side gig for me. This is not my main job. I have a day job and uh, it's changing and it's, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's exciting. It's all good news. Um, but it, it, it'll, it makes it very difficult to, uh, you know, help produce and, and host this show. It's just a, a huge demand on, on, on my time. Um, so I'm not like leaving to, uh, you know, in these times or some other, uh, left media, uh, you right. Know, He's going to move a, on to finance. So yeah, I mean, I'm going to be a banker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I took, I took mayor Pete's job at McKinsey. They offered it to oh me. My gosh. And I was like, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> So uh, we're going to have a great show uh, regardless, and uh, I think you guys are going to enjoy the episode today. We're going to have uh, the one, the only, Professor Richard Wolf on for our interview segment. So I'm really looking forward to that. He's been, I just, I love how salty he is, especially when it comes to debunking uh, some of the myths out there in regard to inflation. So we'll talk to him about that and other um, economy-related news. Uh, Nando, I'm really happy to see that your decode today is going to be on uh, the failure of the Biden administration um, in regard to his own agenda. You want to give a little preview of that? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't know if I don't know if happy is the right word, but it's uh, it's it's predictable uh, that given the weakness of the Democratic Party or its unwillingness to fight uh, any real fights for its agenda that it's actually just going down in flames and painting a pretty grim political future uh, for the next, at least in the near term. You know, obviously things can change and they change in unpredictable ways, but the near term certainly looks pretty bleak, especially if you're, you know, if you call yourself a progressive or on the left or a socialist or whatever, that there's just very few political avenues uh, open to us, that there seems like there was a a brief moment of opening and it has been closed shut. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'll be talking about insider trading in Congress, uh, something that I've talked about on this show before. But there was a fun update to that story just yeah. this week involving House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Just like they're the, the best. The Democrats are the best. <laughs> Fucking best. Oh. I love them. They, they're the they, best. Don't, they don't hold back. They don't hold back. No. They're just like, yeah, we're going to keep doing insider trading. F you. Like, that's essentially the messaging coming from uh, House leadership. So we'll get to that a little later. And uh, before we do that, I did want to talk about a video. You know, it's about a week old at this point, um, but it it's one of those stories that stays with you, at least stays with me. And I wanted to bring it up in the context of this show. And it has to do with the way that we treat our teachers um, in this country. So let's get right to that story. So teachers were reduced to frantically collecting cash on their hands and knees, not for themselves, not to supplement their salaries, 
but to essentially collect some funds for their students so they can provide supplies that really should be provided by the school system. But unfortunately, uh, education has been so underfunded that now uh, you see videos like the one we're about to show you. Now, a little bit of context before we go to the video. This was a fundraiser put together by a mortgage company and also a hockey team in South Dakota. Um, and so the Dash for Cash is a new addition to the Sioux Falls uh, Stampede hockey team's schedule this year, and it aims to help local teachers fundraise uh, more than $5,000 for their schools. Let's pause for a second. There's a total of $5,000 available um, in this situation, but there are 10, 10 teachers essentially on their hands and knees fighting for the um, $5,000. During the first intermission of the December 11th game, 10 teachers competed against each other to grab as much cash as they could on the ice. Uh, there were $5,001 bills on the ice, and teachers can keep all of the money they grab, again, for their classroom. This is what they're doing for their students, and the fact that they feel that they have to do this because of the lack of resources provided to them tells you everything you need to know about the priorities we have in this country. So um, the video is difficult to watch. I hate it. But uh, here's the video. Some of you may have seen it already. It's gone viral. I just, I hate every part of this story. I hate all of it. And, and what it says about this country. I mean, these are people who are already so severely underpaid, underappreciated. Uh, the fact that teachers, the teachers who haven't quit their jobs, especially during the pandemic, are honestly heroes. And this is what they're reduced to, you know, on their hands and knees collecting cash. Well, the the also the, the, the weirdly dystopian aspect about all of this is that the media covered it as some sort of heartwarming thing. You know, right. um, there's this kind of whole genre of media stories that... Do you guys do you remember that 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 organization called Upworthy, you know, where it was mm -hmm. like heartwarming, you know, uh, this nice thing happened and it went viral or whatever. Like a lot of media companies since then, like copied that style of coverage, um, especially on local news and, and you know, even on on some national news or whatever. But it's, uh, you know, heartwarming. Um uh, teacher donates uh, kidney to to uh, help save students' life or whatever. It's like, wh what do you mean? Like, you know, like this is like, uh, you know, it's I don't know if it's heartwarming. I mean, it's it's um, you know, like this is a uh, or like you know, uh, heartwarming. Uh, nurse ca can't pay her own medical bills, so like community rallies and right. you know funds the thing. And it's like that's like I mean I guess in some level it's on some level it's heartwarming but it's dystopian in, in a it way is. Um, it is. like like the fact that these teachers are scrambling not to like you said not to pay themselves but to just fund their students and their classrooms and they're scrambling like like you know like they're starving in the desert you know what I mean and and someone threw a uh, a bag of chips or something like it's just it's dystopian. It's not heartwarming. It's terrifying. I mean, good for them. Obviously, they're heroes. It's not their fault, but it's just yeah. the, the the social system that produces that um, and it then celebrates the the whole thing is is just bizarre. Yeah. And I mean, it, the other part of this that feels so sick is that it happened during a hockey game. And it's almost as if it's like part of the entertainment, right? Like, yeah. oh, look, the like, here's the cheerleaders and uh, here's the teachers. Uh, yeah. 
you know, it's very different from like going to a basketball game where, you know, during one of the, after one of the quarters, they decide to do like the dunking contest or whatever it is. Like that's for fun. That's, that doesn't involve someone who's uh, desperate for funding for their students or desperate for uh, funding for a medical procedure. And, and really all the stories that you outlined, um, it, it's meant to shift attention away from honestly, the failures that we see in our system to basically like looking at mutual aid as the real solution, right? Looking at mutual aid as, as what we can rely on um, to get people through tough times. But obviously that is not the right system um, to, to take care of our fellow Americans, fellow citizens. Like we should be looking out for each other. And the thing that drives me nuts is when you take a step back and you look at the way teachers have been treated, like the broader picture in, in this current landscape. I mean, they're constantly being harassed right now for, you know, teaching anything pertaining to history that might hurt certain people's feelings. They're being harassed. They're dealing with virtual learning. They're dealing with COVID. They're dealing with school shootings. They're dealing with so much, all with little pay, little resources, and to then degrade them like this and have them be part of this like hockey game entertainment is, is really, really sick. Yeah. And, um, no. I was, cu- go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you're curious what? No. And I was curious, like I-, I knew that, you know, obviously lack of funding is the big issue here. So I wanted to look at South Dakota specifically and just kind of figure out where the state of South Dakota ranks in terms of funding and teacher pay for education. And I, and it, it ranks 33rd, according to the National Education Association, um, 33rd in spending on salaries for instructional staff. Obviously, that includes teachers, 38th in expenditures per student, and 48th in state spending on education. So clearly, South Dakota um, is among the you know worst states in regard to allocating funding for public education. When you talk to powerful mainstream liberals in pr- private conversations, they fucking hate teachers. Like the, it's like it is just the most mainstream thing in the world amongst kind of powerful liberals. You're Jonathan Chates of the world and things like that. Um, and, you know, the people who kind of like and read Jonathan Chait, uh, you know, whether they're Democratic Party operatives or or NGO types or whatever, um, they despise teachers. They hate them. They hate them. And it's kind of like a totally mainstream uh, view amongst the powerful, but they can't do much about it because teachers are organized. Uh, teachers unions are you know, some of the, some of the more powerful unions in, in the United States, they're, um, they are, um, uh, you know, they're, they've been quite militant, especially in recent years, uh, starting with the, the Chicago teacher strikes. And they basically forced them to, uh, you know, total, like, you know, basically not cut into their, their benefits, like when they're in power, they, they, they forced them to come to the table. Um, but otherwise, were it not for the the presence of the teachers' unions, Democrats would decimate public educations in the public education in the same way that Republicans do. Yeah, I mean, think about what happened during the Obama administration. There was a massive shift toward uh, forming charters, and some of the uh, advisors who worked pretty closely with Obama are now in all these like YouTube ads 
bragging about charter schools and what they've done in um, shifting from, you know, public education where you have unionized educators to charter schools, which, of course, do not have organized educators or or unionized educators. Um, So you're absolutely right about that. And I think the disdain that you're talking about is pretty evident. And when you think about the ramifications of that in terms of the Democratic base, voters, I mean, it's just incredible to me that Democrats are like, they seem like they're completely clueless in regard to why voters hate them so much and why they've lost so much support uh, among, you know, working class voters. And it's just the disdain is obvious, whether it has to do with teachers, whether it has to do with their own voters, uh, they just can't help themselves. And it's they just come across as incredibly insane elitists, which is, you know, something that I'll talk about in my decode today, especially uh, when it comes to their behavior in the markets. But yeah, this you can see what their priorities are. And it's really disturbing to, to take in the fact that neither party genuinely cares about representing the powerless. You know, they they claim to, but you you look at their policies, you look at uh, their behavior when they're in positions of power and uh, what they do doesn't really uh, show that they care at all. No, No, absolutely. It's bleak out there, folks. I know. I know. Well, uh, why don't we give the audience a little bit of good news, which is, uh, you know, since you watch this show, uh, you might get a sweet deal with one of our partners. Nando, take it away. Yep. If you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. Now is the perfect time to order gifts for all the radicals in your life. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month and for your first three months. And if you join in December, you'll get these books. The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold by Tariq Ali, essays on the tragedies inflicted on Afghanistan, Feminism and Nationalism in the Third World by Kumari Jayawardena, a founding text of transnational feminism, Democracy Against Capitalism, Renewing Historical Materialism by Ellen Mason's Wood, an exploration of capitalism as a system of social relations and political power, and The Pristine Culture of Capitalism, a historical essay on old regimes and modern states, also by Ellen Mason's Wood, a lively historical look at the contradictions of the capitalist system. Love it. All right. Well, let's get to our decodes because uh, I love the topic that I'm about to discuss. I've talked about Good. it on the show many times before. Um, and it's the fact that our members of Congress who are supposed to be public servants continue trading individual stocks and that causes problems. So let's take it away. While money in politics continues to be a massive corrupting force in Congress, the truth is equally egregious is their ability to invest in and trade individual stocks. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked about whether this should even be allowed, and her answer was ridiculous. But before we get to her, I do want to give you some context into why this is a problem while also explaining a recent five-month investigation that was done by Insider, you know, just looking at whether or not members of the House are abiding by what's referred to as the Stock Act. It was legislation uh, passed during the Obama administration signed by Obama. The whole point was to prevent insider trading by members of Congress while also ensuring that 
their conflicts of interest don't stand in the way of passing legislation that needs to be passed. Now, prior to the Stock Act, studies found that members of Congress had consistently outperformed the stock market and they were very likely able to do so based on insider information. Remember, we're talking about individuals who have you know, these classified briefings, uh, they have private conversations in regard to possible legislation. They have information that ordinary Americans are not privy to. And that information can clearly help them uh, make decisions that are lucrative in the market. Let's take a look. And they have market moving information and they're going to act on that information. I mean, information is king. A groundbreaking 2004 study by a group of professors and researchers examined the records of U.S. senators between 1993 and 1998. The study found that a portfolio tracking the stocks that the U.S. senators bought during the same time period outperformed the market by 85 basis points each month, and a portfolio that tracked the stocks that the senators sold during the period lagged behind the market by 12 basis points. The study concluded that the senators knew appropriate times to both buy and sell their common stocks. Now, that apparently uh, did get some negative attention, almost to the point where uh, the Obama administration decided that it needed to push for uh, robust reforms. The only issue is they didn't end up passing robust reforms. They ended up passing something known as the Stock Act. Okay, so this is the insider trading bill um, that was meant to prevent lawmakers, both in the House and the Senate, from uh, you know engaging in these conflicts of interest and also using insider information to uh, trade various stocks. Now, um, Obama seemed to market this as if it was this incredibly powerful, robust regulation meant to hold members of Congress accountable while also forcing them to disclose their activity in the markets. Let's watch. The Stock Act makes it clear that if Members of Congress use non-public non, uh, non information to gain an unfair advantage in, in, uh, in the market, then they are breaking the law. It creates new disclosure requirements and new measures of accountability and transparency for thousands of federal employees. That is a good and necessary thing. It is a good and necessary thing, but really what matters are the details. Now, what did this regulation, what did this uh, law entitle uh, the American people to? And what did it force members of Congress to do? Well, really, the strongest part of it was the disclosure component, although in order for it to be strong, it would need to be enforced. Now, lawmakers and their uh, senior staff who earned at least $132,552 in 2021 uh, would need to report or disclose any trades that they make in the stock market worth $1,000 or more. And they have to report it within 30 to 45 days of making those trades. But the legislation likely intentionally didn't have a strong enforcement mechanism in place. And so a recent five-month investigation by Insider found that the reporting requirement has not been honored by members of Congress. Insider's investigation of financial disclosures found that 49 members of Congress and at least 182 of the highest paid Capitol Hill staffers were late in filing their stock trades during 2020 
and 2021. Lawmakers and senior congressional staffers who blow past the deadlines established by the 2012 Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act are supposed to pay a late fee of $200 the first time. Increasingly higher fines follow if they continue to be late, potentially costing tens of thousands of dollars in extreme cases. Now, since, uh, you know, they passed this legislation, they allegedly believed in this legislation, um, they're enforcing it, right? I mean, if the disclosures aren't happening, then there should be fines, there should be punishments, except that's not what's happening. According to Insider, no public records exist indicating whether these officials ever paid the fines. Congressional ethics staff wouldn't even confirm the existence of non-public ledgers tracking how many officials paid fines for violating the Stock Act. And uh, Insider decided to uh, reach out to these members of Congress to see if they would maybe provide proof that they paid fees or disclosed, uh, you know, their trades. Well, 19 of these lawmakers that Insider reached out to wouldn't answer a single question about whether they paid the penalty. Um, and uh, others were not v- really upfront. Uh, they declined. Uh, Ten other lawmakers, for instance, said that they did pay their fines, but they declined to provide any proof such as a receipt or canceled check. All right. So now you have uh, a little insight into what's really going on in regard to the Stock Act and whether it's being enforced. And so during a recent press conference, Nancy Pelosi was asked about this and also asked a a follow up question that I think is incredibly important. And it's also incredibly important to pay attention to how she answered it. Let's watch. Um, Madam Speaker, uh, Insider just completed a five-month investigation. Five of that 49 members of Congress and 182 senior congressional staffers have violated the Stock Act, um, the Insider Trading Law. I'm wondering if you have any reaction to that. And secondly, should members of Congress and their spouses be banned from trading individual stocks while serving in Congress? No, I don't know to the second one. Um, any, uh, We have a responsibility to report in the stock on the stock, but I don't, I'm not familiar with that five month review. But if uh, people aren't reporting, they should be. Because this is a free market, and people, we are a free market economy, they should be able to participate in that. Yes, ma'am. We are a free market economy, and we should be able to uh, use the insider information that, you know, most other people are not privy to, to, uh, inform our trades. It's a free market. Listen, I mean, even if uh, the free market argument stood, uh, it doesn't really make much sense, again, when you are using information that other people do not have access to. Uh, But look, the, the reaction from Nancy Pelosi is not in any way surprising, especially when you consider the fact that her own behavior in Congress is what inspired the Stock Act in the first place. Pressure's been building after several academic studies revealed lawmakers play the markets better than anyone else. Members of Congress outperform the stock market by about 6 to 10 percent on a regular basis. Now, that may be due to the infinite wisdom that resides in these halls, or it could be something different, luck, uh, smart, savvy trading, or, or the possibility that there was insider knowledge. Recent reports highlighted potential conflicts of interest. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, is alleged to have received beneficial treatment from credit card company Visa to buy its shares as a controversial credit card bill was being discussed. I mean, 
seems like she doesn't really care too much about the enforcement of the Stock Act. Seems like she wasn't necessarily even in favor of the Stock Act, considering she was part of the inspiration behind passing it in the first place. It's just incredible stuff, really. And to be sure, Nancy Pelosi isn't the only one who is benefiting handsomely from this insider information. Seems like her husband, Paul Pelosi, is also benefiting from it. In fact, a recent report in Forbes indicates that the week before the House Judiciary Committee voted on reigning in big tech, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband exercised a bullish bet on Google Parent Alphabet in a timely transaction that netted him $5.3 million. Paul Pelosi, who bought 4,000 shares of Alphabet on June 18th, as revealed in a financial disclosure signed by Nancy Pelosi and filed on July 2nd, made an initial $4.8 million gain from Alphabet's rising share price and has since seen his gain grow to $5.3 million. Paul Pelosi also reported buying call options for Amazon, Apple, and uh, NVIDIA, but he did not report exercising them. So going back to Pelosi's video where she uh, says, well, you know, I'm I'm not familiar with that five-month investigation, but if members of Congress and their spouses aren't reporting it, uh, they, they absolutely should. Well, maybe Pelosi should take her husband aside, have a conversation about how he's not abiding by the Stock Act. I'm sure she's genuinely concerned about that. Now, I want to go back to the enforcement mechanism for the Stock Act because it really has no teeth. It's incredibly weak for a number of different reasons. So, for instance, Insider's report also includes um, some important details about why the enforcement mechanism is weak. For instance, the enforcement of the financial disclosure requirements is virtually non-existent, said a former investigative counsel in the House's Independent Office of Congressional Ethics, who was granted anonymity in order to speak candidly. Others say that the enforcement process is just too complicated and burdensome, uh, and it seems like people keep passing the buck in regard to who's meant to enforce it. The former investigative counsel at the Office of Congressional Ethics described the late penalty compliance process on the House side as, quote, not the simplest thing in the world. The committee does not look for late filings. There is no notification or follow-up. I mean, seems like this is by design. Now, the person also continues to tell Insider that if you're late and uh, beyond the grace period, meaning the grace period where you're meant to uh, report your stock trades, you actually have to start making a bunch of calls to figure out how to pay the fine. The instructions aren't even on the ethics committee site. And then you have to walk the check down. Also, a senior congressional aide who also requested anonymity to candidly discuss House procedures confirmed that members did not get notifications when they were late in disclosing their stock activity. Instead, they explained, each member office was expected to figure out not only whether they were late, but also how to pay the late fee. This entirely depends on the honor system, the aide said. And listen, we've seen how self-regulation works in big companies and corporations, um, and that's just to say that it doesn't work. Uh, You can't rely on self-enforcement. And that's exactly what's happening here. Individuals in Congress who are not reporting their stock activity, who are not abiding by the very regulation that they pass themselves, um, 
are essentially the ones responsible to call themselves out, which is insane. And listen, the enforcement is a little better on the Senate side, but there are issues in the Senate as well, as we learned during the coronavirus pandemic, when several senators were seen uh, trading stocks after having a classified coronavirus briefing. Now, on the Senate side, one of the main problems is uh, funding, because they have to allocate the funding necessary to enforce the Stock Act for the Senate. The Stock Act is enforced by the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission. And where do they get their funding? They get their funding from Congress, which is the very body that they are supposed to be regulating. So the Stock Act is good, but I think we need to do a whole lot better. And look, uh, what we're also seeing uh, on TikTok with financial advisors and even with other retail traders is since they feel like they can't beat the corruption that we're seeing among members of Congress, they've decided to join them. For instance, uh, Yahoo News reports that uh, there are retail traders who are just simply following the disclosures uh, offered by uh, Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband. And uh, if they're able to outperform the market based on insider information, why wouldn't retail traders do the same thing? It's a problem, right? It's a huge problem because it shows that there is a double standard in society. If an ordinary citizen or even someone who's not that ordinary, someone like Martha Stewart engages in insider trading, there are some serious consequences at play. When it comes to the Stock Act, which is meant to have some consequences, there's no talk about prison time. I mean, the only thing they need to do is, uh, you know, self-regulate by disclosing their stock activity, and then maybe maybe they'll get slapped with a fine. Maybe. But again, in the House, there's really no enforcement mechanism in place. What is in place seems to be a facade, just meant to seem as though uh, they, they want to they want to hold each other accountable, but that's not really what's happening. And why is this such a huge problem? Look, I I don't really care as much about the uh, insider trading. Uh, what I do care about is the double standard. And what I also care about is what this means in regard to the representation that ordinary Americans get from the people that they elect in these positions of power. These are people who are supposed to make decisions on regulation. These are people who are supposed to do what's best for their constituents. But it is impossible for them to do that when these conflicts of interest are at play. When you think about, for instance, our broken healthcare system, well, these lawmakers are very likely personally invested in the stocks associated with private insurers. And these are lucrative investments. Are these lawmakers going to be able to kind of, you know, brush aside their own financial interests to do what's right for the American people? Look, there are maybe one or two principled lawmakers. I mean, I think Bernie Sanders is, is a prime example of a principled lawmaker who genuinely has an interest in representing uh, his constituents and the American people. But with a few exceptions, what we're seeing time and time again is that these so-called public servants aren't really interested in serving you. They're interested in serving themselves. And what this system does is, of course, it creates corruption. But more importantly, it attracts the wrong people to Congress, right? Because if it's just out in the open that members of Congress can trade individual stocks, 
that they can do so based on insider information uh, with impunity. Well, are you going to have, you know, decent congressional candidates run or is this going to attract people who have all the wrong incentives in place? So I think what we're seeing in in government right now is not just a failure um, on behalf of the American people, but a failure of you know, incentives, like putting the incentives in the wrong place, refusing to, um, you know, do anything about these corrupting forces. And these corrupting forces always lead to bad decisions. We're seeing it right now, especially when it comes to the Build Back Better agenda, especially when it comes to social spending, and when it comes to something that we desperately need, like a Medicare for all healthcare um, program in the United States. And um, Nando is going to do his decode today on the Build Back Better agenda. And I don't know, like when you kind of take a step back, Nando, and you see where all the incentives are, I mean, it just, it really makes a lot more sense. Uh, Like the fecklessness of Congress isn't necessarily fecklessness. I mean, some of it is, but I think a lot of it is about, nah, uh, I'm going to look out for my financial interests and I'm not going to, you know, take a privatized broken healthcare system and make it um, something that's run by the government and public. You know, it's funny. Um, I have some friends who work on Wall Street and a while ago they told me that there's a whole group of young kind of traders on Wall Street that all they do or like a good chunk of what they do is they just pick the same stocks that Pelosi's husband does. They just buy the same stocks that Pelosi's husband does. And like while you were doing the decode, I just like Googled it because I've heard that and I Googled it and I found tons of stories about it in one on Yahoo News. Um, and it's it's crazy. It is like uh, it's like it says, though Nancy Pelosi herself doesn't trade stocks, her husband does. And that's enough for some social traders who see his trades as hers. Quote, we've been tracking their performance and every single stock she has bought in the last two years has gone up significantly, Christopher Joseph's co-founder virus said. And it's like, there's just these people who like, they're just like, they know this. Everyone kind of knows this, um, that, that, of course, if you're a member of Congress or married to a member of Congress, not, not, it's not just about the insider information, um, it's about like they can literally do legislation that might help uh, their stocks. Um, of or, course, you know, yeah. And if they're not writing it themselves, like they're around and they can like kind of hint it at people or whatever. Like they they're literally writing the laws, which have massive effects on the stock price of individual companies. Like a, a law could destroy a company, or it could make a company you know multiply in in value, um, depending on what it is, and. It's just, it's absolutely crazy that this is allowed and that she just dismisses it as the most, you know, of course, there's a free market. What are you talking about, you idiot? Um, yeah, and, and like the entitlement that comes along with that, right? Because at this point, Congress, most members of Congress are so far removed from what their job is supposed to be that they forget that they're supposed to be public servants, And so for Nancy Pelosi, it's like, of course, I'm going to use my position of power to make more money. Like, of course, that's the point. Like, you know, it's it's almost like she's incensed, like she's like befuddled by the question, like, how dare you even suggest that members of Congress be banned from uh, investing in individual stocks? But really, one final thing I'll say is it, it makes me realize not not how useless, but like if we put all our eggs in the electoral politics basket, we're going to keep losing because yeah. every every 
like, yes, there's money in politics. And, and that lobbying issue um, has been talked about over and over again. That is a problem. It exists. But it's not just about that. Like, it's just systemic corruption. It's baked into what these members of Congress do. So we can have election after election. We can hear candidate after candidate, you know, telling us all the pretty little stories that we want to hear. But at the end of the day, if we as Americans don't have our own enforcement mechanism, if we're not organized, um, really the electoral politics ends up being, I don't want to say irrelevant. It is relevant to some extent. But the impact of electoral politics really is limited when you have, um, you know, the situation we have right now with no labor power, very little labor power and, um, you know, uh, no real movement in place to uh, provide a real enforcement mechanism to ensure that uh, ordinary Americans are, are represented. And funny you should mention that, Anna, because that is exactly what my decode is about. Take We're it away. in sync. All right. Well, You may recall, but early in the Biden administration, there was much talk of Uncle Joe as our new FDR coming in to save us in the wake of a disastrous presidency that plunged the country into chaos. David Gergen, who's Washington's dean of conventional wisdom, wrote a piece that outlined, quote, three striking similarities between FDR and Biden. Time magazine explained to us that Joe Biden is positioning himself as a modern FDR. And NPR asked, can Biden join FBR, FDR and LBJ in the Democratic Party's pantheon? It's worth reading that piece because it wrote, quote, as we approach Biden's, uh, President Biden's 100th day in office at the end of this month, some observers are flattering him with comparisons to two legendary Democratic presidents of the 20th century, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Lyndon B. Johnson. Those names reportedly came up when historian John Meacham convened a group of his colleagues at the White House in early March for a private session with Biden. And since then, the aptness of comparing this this new president to such transformative figures of the past has become a matter of some debate in Washington and beyond. The sheer scale of Biden's spending and change agenda finds its analog only in the early achievements of FDR and LBJ. But which of those administrations offers the better insight into what is happening now or What happens next? Well, now we know what happens next, because the centerpiece of Biden's FDR-like presidency was a new massive social spending bill that was going to transform the country as it struggled to get out of the pandemic. It was going to be his version of of FDR's New Deal, which helped the country crawl out of the Great Depression while transforming the American state. Biden world was calling this new initiative Build Back Better. Well, folks, as of this week, Build Back Better went Build Back Bust. In a major blow to President Biden's agenda, Senate Democrats will likely not be able to pass his massive social spending bill before the new year. It boils down to two main problems. They don't have a finalized bill yet, and they also don't have the 50 votes needed to pass the nearly $2 trillion package. The Senate's most important swing vote, West Virginia Democrat, Senate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, continues one-on-one negotiations uh, directly with the president. So after months of haggling, Senate Democrats have tabled the bill indefinitely. MSNBC's Jesse Rodriguez reported that Democrats were now going to focus on voting rights instead. The thing is, Build Back Better was going to pass through reconciliation, which means that Democrats only needed 50 votes. Voting rights can't go through reconciliation, which means that they would need 60 votes or reform the filibuster. 
Well, just hours later, it came out that Senator Kristen Sinema of, from Arizona was a hard no on filibuster reform, and that was the end of that. As the Washington Post's Jeff Stein pointed out, the whole thing amounted to a three-hour news cycle. So that's that. The collapse of Biden's Build Back Better should come as no surprise. There is plenty of blame to go around. A good chunk of it falls squarely on his shoulders. You see, Build Back Better was always going to be a tough sell to Democratic moderates. It simply did too much good for too many people, for craven ghouls like Manchin and Cinema, to ever support it. But there was a chance early on in his administration to maybe force something through. Bronco Marchetich made this point in Jacobin, quote, Build Back Better's failure can be directly traced to Biden's decision in April to drop everything and try to get Republican sign-on for something, anything, following the successful March party-line vote that passed the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. At the time, Biden was riding high. The pandemic was trending down. The economy was rebounding as vaccines were rolled out. Biden had just signed a major and popular piece of legislation within less than two months, and the subdued, normal nature of his White House was a welcome respite from the wall-to-wall craziness of four years of Trump. All of it, as well as a full-on love affair with the political press, combined with the customary new president polling bump to give Biden an approval rating of 54% by the end of March. It's the kind of position most presidents nowadays can only dream of being in, and the leading lights of Biden's party signaled that they'd learned from their mistakes under Obama, whose fruitless months-long quest for bipartisan buy-in on his major policy items had nearly derailed his presidency. The merits of this outlook were made very real when Democrats simply cast aside unanimous GOP opposition to their pandemic relief bill, writing it with no Republican input and passing it with only Democrat votes, and proceeded to be rewarded for it in polling. No wonder, after the dysfunction of the Trump years and an even longer period of gridlock-driven government failure, Biden had proven the U.S. system of government could still work, and in the middle of a world historical crisis, no less. So Biden's desperation to pass anything that could be called bipartisan stalled his agenda for months. But it also weirdly gave progressives in Congress something they rarely ever have, leverage. When the two bills were split, progressives had the power to derail the bipartisan infrastructure plan that was so bad that moderate Democrats and even a lot of Republicans wanted it. They could use that to force Democratic moderates to support the way better Build Back Better plan. It was a game of chicken, and all the progressives needed to do was hold the line. Well, how do you think that turned out? Of course, the progressives blinked. It came in the wake of a disastrous electoral defeat in Virginia, where the Democrats lost the governorship to a Republican, even though Biden won the state handily just a year earlier. The moderates in the caucus and much of their mouthpieces in the media blamed the loss on the fact that progressives were stalling the president's agenda, and they voted for the bipartisan infrastructure plan. Thus giving away their leverage. Here is the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, talking about that decision, and you will never, ever see a more stark example of breathtaking political naivete. You compromised and you voted for the infrastructure bill without a vote on the larger spending bill at the same time. So how much faith do you put in, uh, in your moderate colleagues, Congresswoman, to follow through with a vote next week for that more ambitious plan? Well, Wolf, it's good to see you. Look, I think we had a very uh, uh, important negotiation with the six Democrats who still needed to see the CBO score. And I'm very pleased to report that I think, you know, we started to rebuild some of the trust. They uh, committed in writing to doing the vote, voting for the Build Back Better Act um, in about 10 days. 
Uh, that CBO information that they're waiting for should be here by then. Um, and they really committed that they did not believe anything was necessarily going to change with the information that they got, but they wanted to see it. And they were willing to put in writing both the date and the fact that it would be the bill as is. So no more dithering about uh, what the provisions are. This is the bill we have, which is, of course, what progressives always wanted. So while we didn't get the actual vote, and I wish we had, Wolf, I mean, I'll just say I wish we had, but we were in a position where we felt like we got something that was almost as good, which is their commitment. And I do think that if we're going to rebuild trust, then we have to believe that when they give a commitment publicly, when they look me in the eye and each one of them says to me, yes, we're going to vote for this, that that needs to be enough for us to move forward. And again, it's a date certain in just 10 days, we'll be able to pass it through the House, very strong vote at that point and send it over to the Senate. You see, we have this piece of paper. They looked me in the eye. They made a promise. 10 days. We didn't get the bill. We got almost something just as good, which is just this little piece of paper. And they looked me straight in the eye and said they were going to do it. Well, I'm sorry, uh, Congresswoman Jayapal. That is just not how politics works at all. Liberals love to talk about how norms have been eroded, yet it's a lesson that they themselves never absorb. To quote Logan Roy, life isn't knights on horseback. It's a number on a piece of paper. It's a fight for a knife in the mud. Jayapal and the progressives gave away their leverage, a.k.a. their own power, in exchange for nothing. Literally nothing. I mean, you could still hear Joe Manchin lashing his ass off as these progressive dupes fell right into his trap. To their credit, AOC and the rest of the squad opposed Jayapal's decision and voted no on infrastructure, but it shows just how divided even the progressives are on questions of basic tactics. Anyway, all of this sets up a grim politics for 2022. Progressives seem completely powerless, while conservative Democrats are happy to watch the world burn and almost seem to welcome a Republican landslide in 2022 and beyond. After the failure to pass their social spending bill, the White House is just throwing up their hands and saying, fuck it. I mean, remember when Biden promised this? There is talk of debt relief. There's bailing out of businesses, which is a good thing to do. What about the students? Is now a time to forgive student debt and then restructure how we pay for college so we're not here again in 10 years? The answer is yes. That's why I proposed and, and the House, Nancy, put it in the plan to immediately provide $10,000 in debt relief as stimulus right now. Right now for students. A minimum of $10,000 relief. Well, that's out the window. Uh, And we're still, the administration is now saying that student loan, there was a student loan moratorium, that they will have to start being repaid as of February. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona says federal student loan borrowers can expect to restart their payments in February. Monthly payments have been paused since March of 2020 because of the pandemic. So in an election year, the Democrats will have to explain to millions of people why their bills just went up. And they'll have to do it after explicitly promising to cancel at least some of their debt relief. Worse still, the child tax credit, which is Biden's only real policy achievement and was insanely popular, not to mention a lifesaver for new parents struggling to make ends meet. Yeah, that's going away. Today, some families across the nation are receiving their last monthly child tax credit payments. That means parents will no longer receive hundreds of dollars every month per child. That is, unless Democrats manage to pass President Biden's massive social spending pack. Now, in case you think there's much hope in that being extended, 
Manchin seems like he's a no. According to CNN's Manu Raju, talks between Manchin and Biden are not going well on Build Back Better, per source familiar with the talks. A huge sticking point, the child tax credit. Manchin wants it cut. Source says he wants to zero it out. They are very, very far apart, the source says. Again, the only way to get someone to do something they don't want to do is to exercise your leverage over them. But right now, progressives and the White House have no leverage over Manchin. So it's likely that that's not going to happen. Childcare in this country is a disgrace. If anyone has had children or have loved ones who have had children, know what I'm talking about. It's virtually impossible to juggle the demands of work, bills, and the kids' needs. So Democrats will now have to explain to parents why their bills are going up too. Hey, some of them may be double whammies, new parents who also have student debt. Unsurprisingly, Biden's poll numbers are in the toilet, and they're particularly shocking when it comes to young people. According to the latest YouGov Economist poll, Biden's net approval rating among voters under 30 has gone down by 50 points. By voters between the age, for, for voters between the ages of 30 to 44, it's gone down by slightly over 40 points. And this spells electoral disaster any way you slice it. So post-2022, as bleak as it sounds, our main focus will have to be to do everything we can to stop a Joe Biden administration from working with a Republican majority to implement further austerity. Because you know he's going to be tempted to. And you know the political press is going to be pressuring him to all the time. And the way that happens, the only political tool that we have right now is increasing labor militancy. It's happening everywhere. Just this morning, grocery workers in Portland walked off the job. So the political avenues, they seem closed right now. And in very real ways, they are. But labor is the key to opening them. Increased labor power, organization, and militancy will change our politics in ways that are difficult to predict. The exact contours of the change are hard to see, but the overall nature of it will undoubtedly be positive. Without labor, we are doomed. Yeah, you're on point. Um, That was totally comprehensive, and I'm glad that you talked about um, both Biden's failures, but also the failures of progressives who uh, just gave their leverage away so early on. Um, You know, there was a piece in Politico that we talked about on TYT yesterday, and it was meant to like provide cover for Pramila Jayapal and like how she's trying to spin everything that's happened as a win. And uh, she's also planning on attempting to maintain uh, the like position, the leadership position for the progressive caucus. And I, it just like, it blows my mind because they've failed. And now like they're trying to kind of twist things. Like they're twisting themselves into pretzels, like trying to pretend as if, no, we actually did a great job. Um, we've, we've provided quite a bit uh, for our voters, but how are you going to make that argument when you haven't actually delivered uh, the social spending package that, has dominated the news cycle um, since the beginning of the Biden administration. Like it's people aren't stupid. And it just kind of goes back to this issue that I have. And I think a lot of people have with the Democratic Party, where I, I just think they consistently insult the intelligence of their base and and yeah. think and they take their voters for granted. And it, it's they're going to lose because they deserve to lose. But we don't deserve the Republican Party. You know, it's. Anyway, it's it's a really frustrating situation. And really, all they needed to do was apply pressure. I mean, and I think about it in the context of the Trump administration and what Trump was willing to do. I mean, obviously, I do not like Trump, but 
Can you imagine if Biden had just a little bit of Trump's aggressive nature in, in terms of trying to accomplish whatever it is he wants to accomplish? Biden gave Manchin's wife a job, an appointment that she wanted. How about you take that away? And look, I, I, I know some people might like roll their eyes at this or think it's not a good idea, but do you think that if the tables were turned, Trump wouldn't do an investigation into Mylan Pharmaceuticals or, you know, what Manchin's daughter was up to? Like Trump would stop at nothing to get what he wants, as we've learned. Whereas Biden's like, I don't know, uh, here's my agenda. Uh, you guys deal with it. And I'll have these like backdoor talks with uh, closed door talks, I should say, with Manchin and Cinema, while also publicly saying how amazing they are and how incredible they are. No, don't constantly give them, you know, carrots. Like you got, you have to fight for your agenda. And honestly, the only takeaway I have is that he didn't really mean it. Like he didn't genuinely yeah. want to pass these proposals. I mean, it's, it, we've talked about in the past that Biden, I mean, his number one thing is belief in the Senate as a deliberative body. Like he's got this kind of very old school mentality of the Senate, which is why he'll never like really go after Manchin or anyone or any other Senator really, even if it was like a Republican, he, they just like, that's just his belief is in the Senate as an institution. Um, he's been there for 250 years. The Jayapal thing is maybe the most breathtaking progressive cave of my life because it was unique in that usually the progressives are put into an impossible situation. And I can always see the argument for caving, which is like they have to choose between holding the line, you know, and destroying a piece of legislation or basically ruining the lives of like, it's usually like, it's usually tied to like, you know, cuts in food stamps or, you know, uh, taking away some big housing subsidy. Like there's always real harm attached to it, you know, to the choice. They have to either hold the line and destroy the whole bill, this awful bill that they don't want to pass, or they have to uh, let, you know, some important federal program just like expire. That's usually the, the bind that they're in. And there's an argument to be made that they should hold the line, but there's a understanding or empathy coming from me where it's like when faced with the, you know, having to stare some mother in the face and be like, I'm sorry, your food stamps were cut. You know, I could have. I could have voted for it and and you're you're going to starve now. Like I can see the, the the that stark choice being brutal. This one was not that. This is exactly. not that at all. Exactly. There was, yeah. This was just this is just a straight up like they could hold the line this time and not suffer the consequences. The only consequence like in terms of like harm for actual people. This bipartisan infrastructure plan it doesn't it doesn't Awful. have anything like that. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, you know, it, it's not the, it's not a choice between that or, or, you know, cutting food stamps, which is usually what it is. This is just like, we don't have to vote for this thing. We don't want this thing. This thing is awful. There's right. nothing, there's, there's no gun to my head on this one. You know, the, all there is, is social pressure from the press and from the White House and from Nancy Pelosi and from whomever to do it and just, just hold the line. Like, like. That yeah. to me is unforgivable. Like she is, it's like political malpractice on a level that I can't remember. You know, like I, again, I've I've heard the arguments, um, and I've had the arguments, and I and I flip flop on them all the time about the choices that progressives have had in the past on certain things. You know, like there was talk, for example, of you know blocking the ACA when 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 Obamacare was passed. Like that was a stark choice. You know, like the ACA. You know, like it'll improve the lives of a lot of people. You know. Um, it was a terrible bill, but you know, there was a real kind of human 
uh, benefit calculus to be done there, you know, like totally. Poor, yeah, it was a mixed bag. It was a definitely it was a mixed, a mixed bag. bag. And there yeah. were provisions in the Affordable Care Act that ended up improving our broken healthcare system. So I agree with you on that. But you're right about the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I mean, it has insanely awful provisions in there. Like the one that I talk about the most, because it's going to have a negative impact on workers privatizing public infrastructure. That's why corporations and Republicans liked it. That's why they were pushing for it. That's why you got Republicans voting for it. When you have Republicans in the Senate and the House voting for it, you know that there's some corporate handout there that their donors absolutely want. And why do I say that it's actually going to, um, you know, further hurt uh, the lives of workers? Because think about it. You have corporations taking over roads and bridges that once were public what do you think they're going to do? They're going to implement yeah. tolls. They're going to implement fees and fines and all sorts of, you know, uh, regressive taxes that end up hurting people as they're trying to commute to and from work. And we've seen how that's been a failure in in other contexts uh, with, with various states who have already tried that model. And it's just, it's devastating. So you're right. Uh, Pramila Jayapal, and she's not the only one. I mean, Ro Khanna, is another progressive lawmaker who I agree with on a lot of different things, but he was also insanely naive in regard to the promise that uh, the moderate Democrats were making. Well, if what are these people thinking? Like, what are these people like? What is it? Like, what have they been asleep? Like, what? Seriously, like, I it's it's literally inexcusable. Like, I I don't like you know I'm not like a fire you know like a bomb thrower in this kind of thing in with this kind of thing, but this one is literally inexcusable. Right. Um, there is no way you can inhabit that mind space or like be aware, awake in the last decade, for example, or even in the last few years and think that like actually believe that this was going to like, I don't know. It's just it's it drives me crazy. And there's a lot at stake. I mean, to go back to what you briefly mentioned um, about the Senate shelving the Build Back Better agenda to aggressively focus on uh, voting rights. As you correctly mentioned, Kirsten Cinema is against reforming the legislative filibuster, right? So it was it was a lie from the beginning. Like they knew from the beginning that they don't have uh, all Democrats on board in terms of at a minimum reforming the legislative filibuster, maybe even creating a carve out for voting rights. And I bring that up because it just, again, goes back to how little they really care about representing the best interests of their own um, constituents. And they don't even really care. I, at first, I was like, well, I mean, voting rights, that ha- their political careers are at stake here because you have voter suppression in various states right now. You know, and, and you need that voting rights bill to pass in order to mitigate the damage that's being done in all these various states with the suppression laws. And I realized, like, no, they don't even care about democracy. I mean, if they see that elections are now rigged and they can't get reelected thanks to gerrymandering and all of that, well, they'll just work as uh, consultants or lobbyists and they'll make a ton of money. They don't care. I mean, the only thing that's at stake here really is uh, our democratic process, as um, flawed as it is, uh, and basically the future of ordinary Americans. Who cares about yeah. that? You know, they'll get paid. Yeah. Uh, it's tough. It's a tough one. Um, again, yeah. we talk about like, you know, uh, there was a brief opening in the electoral arena 
uh, run the twin Bernie Sanders campaigns, um, the Democratic Party was vulnerable. It was on its knees, and um, but they fought back, and now the the avenues seem very closed uh, on that front, and. Um, there just needs to be a different calculus on, on how to shift the balance of power. And um, it's going to be a long slog. It's going to be brutal. It's gonna, we're entering a very, a very strange political time in which there is a kind of, there is a genuine move from working class people to the Republican Party. Um, we're going to see a situation in which the two parties are the workers are split amongst the two parties, you know, where, yep. you know, the two parties basically have in their camp um, workers and, you know, rich capitalists um, and divided our, along culture lines. And that is a recipe for an awful, awful politics like that is just that is just the worst thing you can possibly have. Um, like, I don't think I don't think the Republican Party is going to win with workers but they're going to peel off enough in which there's going to be a divide um, and it's going to be along cultural lines and it's just going to make everyone insane. Everyone yell at each other. Everyone hate each other while literally nothing happens um, and the rich get richer and everything else just gets slightly worse every every year. Yeah, that's been an ongoing trend. Um, and, you know, I think there's an obvious reason why you see both parties just constantly engaged in in culture wars. Because what else are they going to do? Talk about their differences on economic policy? <laughs> I mean, Democrats might be able to uh, claim that they favor different economic policy, but considering the fact that they never fight for it, it makes one question whether they're being honest, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, obviously, this is all very depressing, but maybe, just maybe, uh, someone who can uh, give us a little bit of hope is uh, Professor Richard Wolf, one of our favorites on this program. Someone that we Love always enjoy having a conversation with. Very nice. How are you doing, Professor Wolf? Pretty well, pretty well. Trying not to get depressed. And I understand that people are, but I do think there are a whole bunch of signs of things that we should not lose sight of. Not to give up on what's depressing, but to keep a balance if you can. So let's talk about that because... Yeah, um, hit us with it. Yeah, yeah. Because Nando just talked it. about the failure of the uh, Build Back Better agenda and how um, it is you know, going to be shelved now. It's pretty much over. So that massive social spending package is is done with. And um, you know, curious what your take is on, on how everything unfolded. Well, I guess the biggest framework that I can think of for this is the uh, metaphor of a sizable portion of what passes as the sport of wrestling in the United States. There is a sizable part of professional wrestling in which the same employer employs both of the wrestlers, carefully choreographs every step of their combat, including who the winner is, which is planned in advance as well. And the whole thing is a kind of performative extravaganza aimed at generating the revenue uh, from television and other coverage, attendance at the so-called fights. Um, and everything stays pretty much the way it is. And everybody enjoys this combat, even though almost everyone knows that it's a total fakery and has nothing to do with a genuine contestation 
whatsoever. For me, Republicans and Democrats uh, in the main uh, are the two sides of one of these choreographed wrestling matches. Um, They are paid now more than ever before by the same corporate sector of our economy, uh, to use the words of the father of Kamala Harris, uh, who referred to her as having been captured by her donors. Um, <laughs> he shouldn't have signaled her out. I'm sure that's a familial issue, not not a political one. But the notion of being captured by your donors applies to an awful, awful lot of them. Um, that's That's no doubt true. And I see that as a victory for for capitalism. It it allows the horror of what we see, a system that is producing levels of inequality that we thought were historically behind us in terms of centuries, let alone um, in in our modern times. We're going full speed ahead backwards to create new pharaohs who, instead of building pyramids, compete to sit in rocket ships going around the world uh, while the numbers of people in poverty and starving and all the rest go out. It's a spectacle which, because of the struggles of the past, is reaching, I think, millions of people and pushing them into a critical position. And I'm mindful, because I know you guys know about it too, that there are labor movements exploding across the United States. I'm an academic, so I was struck this last week uh, by the decision in California where the the teaching assistants, the graduate students, and so on have simply mobilized so effectively that the university caved. It couldn't even carry out the semblance of a fight because of the solidarity that the uh, young folks who organized that uh, movement there at the university of California uh, achieved. And when you put that together with Nabisco and Kellogg and John Deere and, and all the rest of it, um, I see a level of excitement, a level of anger, a level of hope that um, gives me a lot of, of good feeling about what, what might happen. And the other way to put the same point that might have, be of interest to you is that I have never seen capitalism, at least the Western capitalism of North America, uh, Western Europe, Japan, lumping that under the name Western uh, for the moment. Um, I've never seen it awash in the level of crises upon crises upon crises uh, and displaying a kind of almost caricaturish incompetence. I mean, that the richest country in the, one of the richest countries in the world, the U.S., has failed so miserably in coping with this uh, pandemic. You know, here we are with 4% or roughly 4.5% of the world's population, and we have whatever it is, 17%, whatever the latest numbers are, of the world's deaths I mean, that's a level of failure on, on a literally on an epic kind of scale. Um, and so for me, I see a highly problematized capitalism limping along 
from crisis to crisis with abundant displays of inability to cope uh, alongside the beginnings of a of a labor movement kind of waking up. And, and if I could add one point, a comparison historically. While the current economic difficulties we're in are very severe, they're not yet as bad as things got in the Great Depression of the 1930s. But I would remind everyone The Great Depression hits in October of 1929, and the massive movement of the American working class to the political left doesn't really get underway until 1933 or 34. Uh, In other words, it takes time. It's a little bit like a working class doesn't want to believe how bad it's getting, doesn't want to undertake the difficult and costly to the working class struggle to make things stop deteriorating this way. And I think we may be now enough years into the after effects of the 2008 and 9 Great Recession, combined with this pandemic and the collapse of the economy in 2020 and most of this year, um, to finally say, okay, this is intolerable. And to come out of a a pandemic and the crisis to be told that you're now going to have an inflation in which the prices go up significantly more than your wages do. I mean, it's too much. And the, the, the numbers for people quitting their jobs, the bitterness, the anger, it's not just culture wars. It is the bubbling up from below of a very profound economic divide. And if the Democrats, as your commentary shows, if the Democrats do not seize this moment uh, in the in the way that Roosevelt had to, well, then they are letting go an opportunity. But it's not because it isn't there. It's because they are captured by their donors. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm curious to know to hear what you think about this um the you know you mentioned capitalism is limping along and in a series of of crises and it's it's obvious that it is at the same time it seems as resilient as ever i mean there there doesn't seem to be a meaningful threat to it um so it's kind of this weird situation in which it's a permanent state of crisis without without um obvious alternatives uh bubbling up this labor upsurge the labor militancy um that's that that we're seeing um you know still still small in absolute terms, but definitely more active than it has in at least in the decades that I've been around. Um, and uh, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts as to what's driving it. Is it, is it, and, 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 and like how, how far can it go? Well, let me react. I'm not sure which it, your, it refers to. But the labor upsurge. Okay. Well, before I get to that, if I may comment on one thing you said, uh, capitalism looks like it's coming back or it's in okay shape. Let me push back a little bit on that with, with, with some things for you to think about. Um, the United States now has the greatest level of debt in its history, government debt, corporate debt, household debt. This is an economy which has been living on debt and shows no sign of relieving that problem. Indeed, uh, the rising prices relative to wages is going to drive even more 
uh, working class families into even more desperate indebtedness. And if indeed we have the inflation that raises interest rates, which is what most folks who watch this stuff expect, then you're driving the working class into more indebtedness that's going to cost them more in interest. And that's a one-two punch they can't handle under these circumstances. And the big retailers in this country know that and are very worried about that. This debt, we've never navigated this situation. What a debt like this means is think of it as a web that connects every business, every city and state, every household in a web of interdependent flows of in, interest payments, uh, repayment of principal, we don't know then how a breakdown in any corner, whether it's uh, ships in the harbor of Los Angeles or uh, another upsurge of the Omicron version of the, of the pandemic, etc. Th- this is going to ramify faster than ever before and in ways and directions There is no way to handle. And we're watching uh, a government that is showing its complete incompetence here. It is pumping money like we've never seen in the history of capitalism into this economy. It is running budgetary deficits like we've never seen. And and the, the, the silly commentary, as if all of this is doable, don't worry about it, it's all under control, I mean, you really cannot take this seriously. The only thing that's clear is that it's unprecedented, uncharted territory. I can't tell you what's going to happen. I'm not telling you it's going to collapse tomorrow. But if you listen to people who assure you that it won't, then you, everybody, the generalized you, are making a very large uh, mistake. And I would also push back, and I don't mean to scare anybody with this, Yet it has to be said, or else again we are we are living in fantasies. For the first time in a century, the United States is not sitting atop of the world as the big capitalist power that others can only envy. That was true after World War I, when all the other potential contestants for that role were wiped out or wiped each other out, to be more accurate. The only ones who resurfaced after that, who could have perhaps made an effort to be a second superpower, the Germans and the Japanese, they were destroyed in World War II, so that the last 75 years up to now have been the United States in this extraordinary position. That's over. That's gone. The decline of the United States as a a player in the world economy is palpable and clear from all the relevant statistics. But perhaps the most important thing is to understand we now have a competitor. It's called the People's Republic of China. This is as uncharted a territory in this century as is the level of indebtedness. And neither the indebtedness and all that it implies, nor the government's incapacity to figure out quite how to manage this, or the thing in China as a competitor, any one of those should have shaken But having three of them at the same time, we are not a capitalist planner. And I assume there are some in Washington looking at this situation who blithely tells you we don't have much to worry about. We're coming. But that's silly. That that may be for public consumption. You may not want to get your people upset. I get that. But any level headed looking at this 
would be, should be very, very worried. And the polarization, it's not just in this country. You see it in Great Britain, starkly. We are in the process of watching the disintegration of the entire Boris Johnson um, conservative domination of that political state. It ought to frighten people in the United States unless they make believe it doesn't count. And Mr. Johnson is not going down because he had a uh, an inappropriate Christmas party. He's going down because of an accumulated network of hostile rage at him from all sides that bespeak a system that's disintegrating. The election in Chile between the, the son of a Nazi German uh, uh, political right winger whose son shares the same politics, who bemoans the loss of Pinochet uh, when the whole rest of the world understands what a what a horror that was. The struggles in these polarized societies, I think, is the facade of an underlying situation that capitalism in its old centers, North America, Western Europe, and Japan, is giving way to a new system in Asia, uh, India, China, Brazil, and South America, and so on, that, that we are in the process of these transitions and that the fate of capitalism is, for the first time in my lifetime, actually hanging in the balance. You know, I, I don't know if you came across this uh, pretty incredible video featuring Hillary Clinton and um, her concerns about our supply chains and uh, our reliance on China. And in the context of her video, she argued that the United States needs to take back the means of production. As you were talking about China and, and how uh, China's economy poses a real, you know, competitor uh, to the United States. I, I couldn't help but think about that statement from Hillary Clinton. Um, what is your response to what she said there? Um, I feel sad for her. She seems capable of getting really excited about ideas that are very old, maybe not for her, but for those of us who deal with this on a regular basis manufacturing and that's really what she means uh, mm -hmm. and all the people who talk like that, that's really what they're talking about manufacturing in the united states in terms of the number of people involved peaked around 1978 1979 about 20 i mean these are rough numbers about 20 million um, people had jobs and those were pretty good jobs they were mostly union jobs or many of them were they got union pay it was uh, the traditional family so that the one man who worked was supposed to earn enough for the wife to be at home and be a homemaker and all of that, which is all mostly gone now, but was the idea back at late, as late as that. Um, every president after that presided over the decline and virtual disappearance of manufacturing. Every president, starting with Reagan and everyone since, has promised to reverse the decline, and so forth. Every president promised it. No president has delivered it. We now have somewhere between eight, eight and a half million uh, people working in manufacturing in non-supervisory uh, roles, according to the same government statistics everybody else relies on. I didn't make these numbers up. Uh, that's over. And 
part of it being over is the decision that she doesn't like to say, so she simply avoids it, that private capitalists would include most of the donors to her campaign and to her political party made the decisions over the last 40 years to close down manufacturing in this country and move it to China or to India or to Brazil or Lord knows where else. And they're continuing to do it as I speak to you. So these are fantasy. We're going to bring manufacturing back. You remember when Trump trumpeted all of that? Like all the others. It's not a perspective that the two parties disagree on. They are in 100% agreement on the importance of doing uh, bring back manufacture, in her case, bring back the means of production. She probably thought choosing that phrase uh, was clever. But, you know, they promise it with that blithe pretense that this promise hasn't been made a hundred times and broken a hundred times, that there may in fact be something going on here for which whatever this government has done has been so completely inadequate that someone who doesn't bring forward the idea we need a big change to get a different outcome is one of those people that you think is pretending rather than than analyzing. None of this is going to happen because she has figured out what everybody else who's done this work has figured out long ago, that the forces of profit maximization that drove industry out of, for example, the Northeast and the Midwest, we call those areas the Rust Belt. We understand that capitalists who once made things like automobiles in Detroit aren't doing that, have no plans to do that, couldn't in a million years do that. I mean, that's the reality. And against that, you have this shadow boxing playing around with language. I think one of you said it earlier, my apologies, I don't remember which of you, but that this is a kind of say something because you can't do anything and hope that the saying works as at least temporarily a substitute for the doing. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, Pramila Jayapal uh, trying to kind of twist the failure of uh, passing the social spending package as, as an actual win, you know, because through the negotiations, they were able to, um, you know, secure some provisions that ultimately are not going to be passed because now that legislation has been shelved. Um, it's just, it's, it's strange. Like the, you're right. Like saying that you're actually representing the best interest. You've actually fought hard and you've secured wins when you haven't really um, is a strange way of campaigning. And I think we're going to mm. see the um, ramifications of that in the midterms, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the point that you're making in regard to like the theater that politics is just devolved to and and nothing more uh the wrestling match and nothing more it's it's i think frustrating for a lot of the voters especially those who have kind of like thrown their hands in the air and decided no i'm not even going to engage in the electoral politics why would i i mean i think i agree with you and and in a way i want to applaud you and the program you're doing and jacobin all of it because there has to be if we have any hope those that are willing to 
put on the table how they actually see it, who are not political people running for office, thinking they have to please the half dozen media that are relevant to their running and all the rest of it, but are willing to say, here is a problem, because in doing that, you begin to create the doubt, the skepticism, the questioning of that theater as such. So the people stop thinking, well, something is better than nothing and living in that kind of world. And let me give you an example. We have had in the United States uh, depressions before. This is not the first one. And let me remind everyone, over the last two years, it's a little statistic to keep in your mind. Over the last two years, more than 80 million Americans were unemployed for some period of time. For some, it was only a few weeks. Others, it was the whole time and everything in between. Uh, over 80 million means more than half of the labor force of the United States, which is roughly 160 million. Uh, that's a stunning Think about that. Half, of, over half of our working class, our labor force, as the government counts it, experienced the humiliation the loss of income, the loss of self-esteem, however you want to put it. We have, we have a literature full of showing that unemployment destabilizes people's physical health, mental health, family connection, relations to their children, and, and on and on and on. Uh, we, submitted, we, we subjected over half our working class to that experience. That is an amazing reality. That has to be somehow comprehended rather than swept under the rug. But here's the bigger point. We've also had public health disasters. We had the so-called Spanish flu in 1918 that killed a larger percentage of Americans then than have even so far died from uh, COVID. The number of people who died from COVID is larger, but we are a much bigger population than we were uh, a century ago. What we've never had is the coming together at the same time in our country, of one of the worst depressions we've had, arguably the second worst, and one of the worst public health disasters we've had, arguably the worst, at the same time, fueling each other, overwhelming each other. What this needs is a response that is in some sense comparable. So you can't use the New Deal because, as a model because that was... A, a, a time when luckily we didn't have a pandemic. We had a very bad depression, but we didn't have a killing pandemic that we weren't competently handling. So we are in a whole new place, like the debt, like China as a competitor. We're in this combination of crises. And what we have just done with Build Back Better is begun with something that wasn't adequate and then ripped it to shreds because we can't move. We're a society that's frozen in its divisions, in its mentalities, and yet the enormity of the economic changes and the political changes we are actually facing seems to be blocked out of consciousness so that we can go on in what in psychology would be called a massive case of denial. I saw a um, provocative video from, uh, it's like a talk from uh, Yanis Varoufakis a couple of weeks ago where he talks about um, post-2008, 
um, the situation that capitalism finds itself under. And he described a situation in which uh, capitalists find few avenues for productive investment and, and investment has gone down that there's that they don't they don't foresee kind of um, productive enterprises to put their money in. And, and meanwhile, like we're seeing this kind of rise of the tech platforms and I couldn't help but think of this new, the new Facebook thing, the metaverse as like this new kind of what he was describing as like a techno feudal reality in which we kind of exist in it and, and the owners extract rents, uh, from us. Uh, what do you make of, of, all of that and like the crypto nft stuff which is the thing that i mean i'm from miami and it's like the only thing anyone can talk about uh in miami because our mayor is turning into the crypto mayor how does that fit into your analysis of of the state of capitalism right now because it doesn't strike me as a as a healthy or good thing well it's a symptom for me the way i read it the way i understand it um is a symptom it's partly a symptom of the uh, of the success. I take my hat off to the right wing about that. And I'm jealous. They have been able to replace the capital labor confrontation uh, with the citizen state confrontation. They want everything to be understood in terms of the big bad government causing us a lot of grief and that we are entitled to push back against it uh, if they tell us to wear a mask, don't do it. If they tell us to vaccinate, don't do it. If they do anything, don't do it. If they have a monetary authority, which is telling you you have to handle your finances this way, don't do it. Uh, go and make your own money. It's, it's, it's a symptom of the success of an ideology, which I think is a failure because it doesn't deal with the capital labor relationship. It pretends it's either secondary or unimportant. I find that somewhere between absurd and, and humorous. But in any case, I'm jealous. They have succeeded in ideologically shifting people out of a confrontation. And the crypto uh, is one sign of that. Here's another sign. It is so obvious that the government can't handle the contradictions that are laid before it that it becomes the right moment for, let's call it for lack of a better term, libertarianism to kind of go wild and, and have all these forms in which it says, see, look how incompetent the government is, as indeed it is, and therefore uh, let's do it on ourselves rather than have the government. There we go with that ideological uh, stuff. So they're going to make their own money. They're going to have their cryptocurrencies. I find it astonishing because if you know about the history of money in capitalism, you'll know that in the early years, in the 18th, 19th century, we did have a system where lots of private entities made money and literally printed it up and circulated it. If you were a businessman or woman traveling in the United States between, say, New England and the South, you would go through six, seven, eight different monetary systems, and you'd have to, you know, uh, exchange your money uh, for the other kind of money that was in the other place. It became what? An area for unspeakable corruption, as everybody who could, every banker who could, made money that they had no backing for, uh, lent it out, raised it, and hoped nobody would ever do what? Demand something real. We even had a word for that in our culture. We, every five years, we would have something called a bank panic. 
or that was the word, panic, because it captured the sudden realization that you had no knowledge of what you had, what you could do, your business could disappear on you in 10 minutes, uh, your savings likewise, your, your ability to function, the bread you needed to eat. And so it was decided by capitalists who didn't want powerful governments to give the control of the money to the government. Yeah, the bankers would have a lot to say. It would be a quasi-independent thing. And so you have the Bank of France and the Bank of England and the Bank of, which are the central banks that control this. We have it. uh, We give it a different name than they do. We don't call it the Bank of the U.S. That's also history. Why we don't do that? We call it the Federal Reserve. We recognize at the beginning of the 20th century, we can't do without it. The idea that there is something radically new and libertarian, that we're going backwards to the private monies that are now going to be competing as we decide whether to exchange a Bitcoin for a a Dogecoin or any of the others, it's a laughable, and yet it's a symptom both of the ideology and of the disintegration. There's no holding this system together. And... Yeah, I encounter lots of people that are all fascinated, but those that I encounter, they're fascinated because as often happens when you pull away a controlling institution, then you get wild gyrations. And that's what the crypto uh, universe is about, wild gyrations. So you can quadruple your money in two weeks. You can lose all your money in two weeks. And this is exciting. But, you know, it's exciting in the same way that the lottery is, you kind of know that every week you're handing over a few bucks for something that is never going to happen. You know that. You tell yourself something else. You enjoy the fantasy for two or three days before the numbers are pulled up and you realize once again that you're not a billionaire, that these are are sad. The lottery got going because – The mass of Americans couldn't pay any more taxes. The authorities, political authorities, don't dare tax the rich or the corporations. And so the solution was give people the illusion that they might escape their financial dilemmas by selling them, you know, lottery tickets. It it, it is a sad commentary, but it's on a disintegrating system. And I want to hammer at that with you. This capitalism that we're living in, it is going through very uncharted waters under very heavy problems for which it has no clear solution. And while that may not disturb the normal political babble between our donor-controlled parties, they're not solving something, and that something is much bigger than either of them. You know, one of the stories um, that people are told right now in regard to inflation is that, you know, the real problem, like there's always some sort of narrative that kind of disposes of any type of uh, critique of capitalism and instead blames uh, the working class in regard to the issues at play. And and I think that that narrative certainly plays out in regard to uh, the in- inflation debates that are taking place right now. And, you know, I've right. seen some of your tweets about it, and I, I think your perspective is important. So can you talk about um, you know, the main myth that you're seeing um, in the conversations taking place, both in Congress and in the media, in regard to what's causing inflation, what's really taking place? Sure. Um, 
And before I do, let me uh, tell you something that may increase your enjoyment at what I'm about uh, to tell you. What we are seeing is a business class so itself confused about where it is and what it's doing and why and so out of touch with itself that it doesn't recognize that its excuses, in this case around inflation, directly contradict what is taught in all of the business schools and in all of the economics uh, curricula across the United States that they've endorsed. So there's a, there's a wonderful internal contradiction that's wrapped up in this. So here we go. What is an inflation? Answer, it's a general increase in prices. Not every price goes up the same amount, but in general, prices either stay what they are or go up each uh, particular industry in its own way. But if there's a general increase, as there has been this last year, uh, we call that an inflation. All right. Now let's do the economics very quickly. Who sets prices? In other words, if prices are going up, let's begin like a detective. Who's doing it? And I give you the answer. It is employers. If you've ever worked in a job in your life, you've noticed that in the description of what your role is as employee, setting the prices of whatever it is you help to produce is not among your tasks. You don't do that. That's a, a right, a privilege withheld from you as the employees, and you're the vast majority, and given instead to the employer. It's the employer. Maybe one or two percent of our people are employers. They set the prices for what is sold in the way of goods and services. So here's the inescapable conclusion. If there's an inflation, if there's a general rise in prices, it is the employers who are doing it. So now let's take the next question in economics. Why are the employers doing it? But it's them. If you want to blame somebody, that's your first target. The answer we, we learn from economics curricula and from all business schools is that businessmen and women who are employers set prices to maximize profits because that's what they're in business to do. That's why they set up that business to make a profit. They are very proud to tell you that they will not apologize, that making a profit is what made America great. Okay, whatever that may be in the way of true or not, it is the truth. They do what they do in order to protect the profits they have and better yet, increase them. So we can answer the question, why is there an inflation? Because employers see it to be a profitable strategy. That's why they do it, just like that's why they do everything else. Why did they move production to China? Because it was more profitable. Why did they create long supply chains around the world? Because it was more. I mean, there's no mystery here. But there's a problem. Here's the problem. You cannot say to the American working class, even after two centuries of indoctrination into the wonders and joys of capitalism, you still can't say to the American working class, the consumer now, we're raising prices for that box of cereal you just bought or that roll of toilet paper or whatever else. They can't be told we're doing that because it'll make more profits for us. So you're going to have to pay more so we get more. This 
this chokes everybody. It, it, it's a level of blunt honesty that is not tolerable to an awful lot of people. So the problem of employers, whenever we have an inflation, is always the same. How do we get away with raising the prices because it's profitable while not being blamed by the people for having done what we just did? How do we do that? Answer, find a scapegoat. Hmm. That's all this is. Find, say, tell a story. Tell us, show us pictures of tankers backed up in Long Beach, California's harbor and tell us there's some supply chain disruption, a wonderful use of words to say nothing. Because, of course, why is it disrupted? But stop, what is this? You're just, you're just focusing me somewhere else. Or, or tell me stories about wages. The one thing we know about inflation is that wages almost never keep up with the inflation, always all almost always happen in response to an inflation, which means coming later, which means the damage has already been done to the workers because their wages uh, don't go up to match the prices, which is where we are today. The inflation rate is now around 7, 7 to 8%, and wages are going up, if you can believe the government, in the neighborhood of 5%. So I mean, no contest as who's getting screwed here. But you have to tell a story. You have to push the blame somewhere else, lest it come to turns and rest on you. Last point. Let's return for a moment to the relationship between inflation and supply chain disruptions. The notion that the relationship between them goes from the supply chain disruption to the price increase is not only scapegoating an abstraction. It's also wrong, as every every child learning economics uh, learns in the early semesters. When you have an inflation, you also produce disruptions of supply. That's one of the consequences of an inflation. How do we know that? Because it's been a consequence of every inflation we've ever kept track of. And the reason is obvious. If I'm a, a capitalist, I buy inputs, machines, raw materials, whatever it is. Suppose I now believe that there's an inflation underway. And let's suppose I'm right. Or even if I'm not right, but I believe it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, wait a minute. I'm not going to order my usual amount of raw material. If I'm a chair maker, my usual amount of lumber. I'm going to buy a lot extra and store it because I can buy it at today's price with an inflation. The price will be higher next week, next month, next year. And I can get a competitive advantage and I can avoid being hurt by my competitor who loads up inventory to escape the inflation of what he buys. And so suddenly all kinds of people buy stuff and stick it in their warehouses, which means the producers of that stuff run out of them. Now, you could call that a supply chain disruption. It is. But instead of seeing it as the cause of the inflation, it is the result of the inflation. And for every way you can show me that the disruption helped boost an inflation, I will show you the other way around. These things go together. And only the ideological task of removing their own profit-driven behavior from the story 
which is what the business community wants, only then are they being well served by the publicists, the journalists, the politicians, and the economists who help them by focusing people's attention anywhere else but on the employer whose profit-driven decisions are the cause of every inflation, because without that, there wouldn't be an inflation. All right. Uh, Professor Wolf, as always, uh, you are fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Um, but, you know, everyone should check out uh, Professor Wolf's work, uh, Democracy at Work, uh, his podcast, Economic Update, which is a must listen. And uh, I hope uh, we'll speak again soon. I hope so, too. And let me go back to only to the beginning in one sentence. The teacher of Karl Marx, a man named Hegel, great philosopher in Germany, taught in a way that has never been lost, that everything is contradictory, everything. Capitalism is full of contradictions. Yes, many of them point down, and you have every right to talk about them and face them. But don't let that system deprive your audience of talking about the changes, the challenges, the contradictions that open up the space for much better change than what we're seeing at the moment. Couldn't agree more. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a good one. My mom is a big fan of Professor Wolf. She listens to his show because she says that uh, he speaks clearly, slowly, yes. intelligibly. You know, she always says that when my sister and I are chatting about something, she's like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. You guys talk too fast. I don't know what you guys are talking about. You guys <laughs> use references that I don't know. And it's too fast. And my mom likes Richard Wolf because she can understand what he's saying, the points that he's making. That's yeah, great. I, Christian actually watch or listens to Richard Wolf's podcast um, every it's funny we got into his car the other day and he like plugged in his phone and uh, economic update planned. just started automatically and i was like proud of you really proud of you yeah yeah i would agree with nando's mom i would never call nando a slow speaker <laughs> uh, an intelligent speaker a clear speaker no no good <laughs> yeah that's how we put you on a youtube show um but um that was wonderful uh, richard wolf is always great and and he is he is all those things that your mom says um he's he's great uh and we appreciate him coming on today uh i'm on because we have a couple more minutes uh to do some super chats uh some comments and questions from you guys uh if you send a super chat in the live chat i can see it and i will read it uh for a youtube member you can just ask a question or put a comment in there as well um there's a bunch of comments uh, and uh, super chats and things throughout the show that I want to run through. Um, and uh, a lot of them are because if you missed the beginning of the show, this is actually both our last weekend's episode of the year and actually our last episode of weekend's period. Um, that uh, It's my fault. Import- it's Nando's fault, really. It is. <laughs> Scheduling issues. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's really just scheduling issues, um, as kind of banal as that is. Uh, and... That's unfortunate, but um, we actually, you're still going to see Nando. You're still going to see Anna in some capacity in the new year. We're going to figure that out. That's on us. We're going to figure that side out. But uh, Jacobin YouTube is still going to have a ton of stuff going on. There's actually a lot of big projects that we're going to be unveiling very soon. Um, New ideas, new project, new series, things like that. So um, stay tuned for that. In the meantime, 
Uh, Ness wrote, sadly can't catch the full show, but wanted to let you guys know how grateful we are to have had you two plus Michael teach us about the power of labor. Thank you, Ness. Labor with a U. Um, Gotta love it. Yeah, la- yeah, labor with a U. Um, well, sent, sent in pounds. We got uh, yeah. 8.99 pounds. Lovely. <laughs> Um, LJ Wombology wrote, Weekends has been the best. I moved on from 2IT for Majority Report and followed Michael the Jacobin. I was happy to see Anna making my same leftward shift and started watching TYT again. Keep TYT radical, Anna. Kale and Nando, keep on keeping on. It's been real. LJ, you, let, LJ. Me, let me Thank respond you, to Wombology. that. Yeah. I'm not only grateful for the incredibly kind comment, but thank you for watching TYT again because I think, you know, one of the things that... Um, I can't stand is like generalizations about anything or, or treating any group of people as if they're monolithic. And there's a diversity of thought at TYT. And I think, um, I don't know. I think that I've uh, done a decent job bringing um, a lot of what I've learned through my time at weekends um, to TYT. And I, like, it feels good to be recognized for that. So thank you. <laughs> I feel like it doesn't, it doesn't ever get noticed or recognized and it gets frustrating because people think that, you know, everyone there is the same, but we're not. And um, I, I love everyone here is not the same. Everyone yeah. at Jacobin is not the same. That's yeah. true. Very true. Yeah. So um, anyway, just want to say thanks. Yeah. Bosco and I usually get mistaken for each other, but that's just a coincidence. <laughs> that's not, that's not typical. Um, LJ had also written before weekends at Jackman. I thought intersectionality was a radical take. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> we did our job. <laughs> um, uh, Christopher earlier just sent uh, five dollars. Maybe Love there it. was a, a photo. Maybe I, I can't see. I can't see the photo. If there's like little emojis and things, sometimes you can do that on YouTube. I can't see that through this extremely primitive software I'm using. Um, and scrolling down, uh, there were some more. Uh, the rower wrote, um, love your work. Anna, keep moving to it left as a former Republican myself. I have a soft spot for him. Um, which, which one was him? Uh, okay. Well, so him, but your path is the right one. We need more Nando on TYT, even if uh, he's dead wrong on the Marvel cinematic universe. That's what MCU stands for. Like I knew it had to do with Marvel, <laughs> but I didn't know it was cinematic universe. So yeah. thank you for that. And thank you for the comment. And um, Nando, we do need to get, I mean, you're super busy, but um, obviously you always have a place um, at TYT. And uh, the Wednesday show is when I do an hour solo. And it started off as an experiment because I didn't know if I really could carry an hour by myself. Of course you can. You can carry an entire day by yourself. I love the solo hour on Wednesdays. I'm yeah, just you're like, like Wolf Blitzer. You're like Wolf Blitzer. Wolf Blitzer. No, don't say that. That's awful. I don't no, that's be a like compliment. That's a compliment. Wolf Blitzer can broadcast on his own for five hours and mm-hmm. not lose an ounce of sleep for, uh, about it. It's uh, yeah. it's incredible. Uh, yeah. People who have that ability, it's a special thing. Yeah, I love it. I, I love to, like, you know, share my thoughts on stories um, completely un- uninterrupted. And also, I think if you want to catch, like, the most leftist commentary on TYT, it would be the solo hour on Wednesdays. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't have to debate anyone. I just speak my piece. It's great. Yeah. Not that reformist pig, John Iadarola. <laughs> oh, John. John's just sweetheart. kidding. John's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think of you as Wolf Blitzer, Anna, but uh, I, I think about you every day as Wolf Blitzer. That's oh, what I do. It's like I wake up in the morning. 
<laughs> no, but I get uh, what you're saying that I can carry a, a show uh, solo. Um, but in terms of like substance, we're obviously very different. Of like so. every episode of Wolf Blitzer's show starts with like, this is CNN breaking news. And then they just talk about stuff that broke nonsense. like yesterday. <laughs> and crazy. nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, nonsense. Oh my God. yeah. Um, there were a few other thank yous I'm just running through um, and appreciate you guys. And yeah, it does. Uh, Richard Wolf's hat was great. Yeah. Um, he just, he clearly just came back from seeing licorice pizza. Um, I haven't seen that yet. Uh, Have you guys seen it? Yes. Yeah, very funny. Is it good? Yeah. Very good. I enjoyed it this weekend. Yeah. Um, Robert wrote social security will be on the chopping block in 2023. When the debt ceiling uh, deal runs out, it will be passed by Republican Congress and signed by Joe Biden. Not off the table. Yeah. Uh, Maybe. Not, in, um, not impossible. Yeah, I think that's probably that's probably the most you can say right now. It's like it's possible. I mean, who knows? Um, you know, Biden seemingly kind of uh, at least, you know, in his presentation moved left the beginning of the administration and capital has very quickly reined him in um, that uh, we've seen what's happened over the last year. Um, you know, and who knows what that means for the future if, uh, you know, if he will remain that malleable in a different direction. If, um, you know, if like if the American labor movement a year from now was much stronger than it is today, it might look a little different. But, um, you know, you can't you can't wish these things into existence. You have to. It's just it's a lot of hard organizing. Um, it's not that people don't want these things. But um, Christopher had also written big thanks to having uh, the professor on. Um, of course, we love Wolf. Uh, let's see. And, um, there was, uh, a number of other very nice comments I'm seeing, um, because it's been one of my favorite weekly shows for a while now. We'll be looking forward to whatever y'all have in store next. Thanks. Me too. Yeah. I mean, I'm, at least I know I'm planning on, um, not doing a live show because it is difficult. Like I, I'm kind of on the same boat as Nando, I made it work, but it's it's tough to have a day job and do an additional live show on top of that. But, um, you know, I've talked to Bhaskar. I'm definitely planning on still staying involved and, and producing content in some capacity. So definitely continue. Um, if you're not subscribed, subscribe to the uh, Jacobin YouTube channel. Um, and if you are, remain subscribed because you guys are still going to see a lot of great content, including the Jacobin show, which is fantastic. I think. And right? you're based. Am I? Yeah. Yeah. Look, you, not knowing what the MCU means, incredibly based. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not my world. By the way, I feel like every movie is now an MCU movie. Like, yeah. you know, no hate, but can we get like a little diversity up in here? Like, oh, there's a new piece up in Jacobin talks just about that. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I got to check yeah. that out. I'm, I'm not up to date on Jacobin. Um, yeah, it's just the, I read every the... single article. <laughs> I know you do. You, I kind of think you do. <laughs> um, LJ wrote, I'm going to Fred Meyer picket line today in Portland to support the workers. Well done. Um, Love it. Well done. Good job. Um, that's what you should do. That's what you got to do. That's what everyone, when you, when these things are happening around the country, when you see uh, labor activity, you should go to the picket line, see what you can do to help. You should ask the workers on the picket line, what do you guys need? And, uh, you know, spread the word and, and try to do your part. Um, but, um, 
Yeah, and thanks to um, thanks to I'm still just kind of reading the chat at the same time. Thanks to our mods that have been with us for like a year and a half. The mods, yes. God's work. The, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I I appreciate all of you who've tuned in regularly. Some of you who've tuned in every once in a while. Some of you only tune in for Richard Wolf. I get that. Um, but we appreciate you and we appreciate, uh, like the amount of support that you've given us and the, like, and also feedback and, um, you know, like it's been useful for me. Like, I'll just say for myself, like someone who puts on these shows every week, uh, you know, the actual day of can be a little bit of a marathon, especially with Nando. Oh, oh, uh, shots fired. (laughs) Shots fired. (laughs) It's so, part of the challenge. We're like, I can't really tight, do it until the morning of. Yeah. yeah, you know. Um, but it's been uh, incredible, like trying to like you know think through how to think through these ideas, think through po- these politics, and and how do you actually articulate these things in a way that hopefully people find useful. Um, and so when you don't find it useful, let us know because then it helps us. Yeah. But um, so again, I guess uh, I'm not really seeing other questions outside of things that I've already gone through, but I did want to, uh, in addition to appreciating our audience, um, I wanted to extend my appreciation to you guys, to Anna, to Nando, and to the late, great Michael Brooks, uh, for, uh, for putting the show on with me, uh, basically every single week for two years. So it's been really incredible and, um, you know, I'm going to miss it. I love you guys. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I feel the same way. (laughs) Go ahead, Nando. No, I'm going to miss it as well. And I feel very grateful um, that I was asked to come in, obviously, under um, difficult circumstances. Um, I felt very proud. I've, I feel very proud to be associated with Jacobin um, in general. Um, it's one of, one of the proudest I've ever felt, really. I mean, I feel I, I believe in the political project. I believe in the work. Um, I believe in the organization. And... Uh, to be associated in any way will always be uh, an honor for me. And 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 working with you guys, uh, Anna, you know, we've known each other for years, always enjoyed kind of dabbling in work. You know, we've we never really like worked together so consistently. We would like, you know, do show appearances every once in a while. But um, working with you guys has been spectacular. It really has. It's been one of the one of the great uh, experiences of my life. And I just I'm very grateful and I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I'll just say I feel the same way. And, you know, there was, as I've talked about so many times, um, just this intellectual and political growth that I was so lucky to experience through my friendship with you, Nando, and, and with Michael. Um, and I'm just so, I feel really lucky that I was able to continue exploring and learning through um, doing this show and through working with you, Kale. I mean, you're, I don't know, you're a lot younger than me. You're like 10 years younger than me, but you're so wise uh, beyond your years. And I've, I've learned a lot um, just by the, the resources you've sent me, uh, the reading material that you've encouraged me to read. Um, I think about Peter Mayer's book um, all the time. And I, I wouldn't have read that book uh, had you not sent it to me. And um, it's actually going to inspire, I, I can, you know, disclose what my projects are. Um, it, it, that book is part of what's inspiring me for my next project, which is a book of my own. 
Um, and so I'm looking forward to continuing, you know, um, collaborating with you guys because I'm sure I'm certain I'm going to need some advice along the way. So there's great things to come. When Anne and I met each other, she thought I was this crazy person, but I'm like a nice guy. And so she got over it. But like, at first she was like, this fucking, what's this guy saying? He doesn't make any sense. He's a fucking crazy person. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, you know, I was surrounded by libs, and I thought that was radical. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, like, like hearing guy, your perspectives was like talking about. But you planted seeds. You planted seeds, and and to be, by the way, to be sure, I did like you a lot from the very beginning, which is why I knew you. I'm for lovely. Like a I'm likable. You are. You're very likable. I knew you for a month, and I invited you to my wedding. So, um, very likable guy. People are saying Nando is very likable. All right. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> well before thank and thank you for all of that um before we sign off i want to remind everyone we're still doing stuff in the new year and you're still going to see us it's the show that's ending not any of us we're all still you'll see us yeah they're not executing passes. me <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah so big things coming um and so again appreciate everyone's support and uh and you'll see us again soon all righty Thank you, everybody. We love you. Happy holidays, and we'll see you soon.